0: This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the sixth session of... This series on emerging church, emerging Christianity. My name is John Markovic. I teach at Andrews University. I am member of the Department of History and Political Science. I am professional historian, not a theologian, though. Although I do have, um, I majored in concentration in theology on the undergraduate level, and I sat at the feet of some of my professors. Some of my colleagues who are professors at the seminary took some courses at the seminary, so I, you know, I can claim some theological expertise. But I'm basically a historian. Nevertheless, I deal with this subject. So today, I will share with you uh, pretty much conclusion, or summary, or specifically how Seventh Day Adventists should or, or or could or relate or deal or address uh, contemporary situation, especially in regards to emergence Christianity. So let us first pray and then I'll begin with the presentation. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sabbath. We thank you for this opportunity to get together and learn and discuss issues that are pertaining to our existence our actions our witnessing and whatever we do however we think in these days now we ask for your presence especially the presence of the holy spirit to help us to understand and give us sanctified reasoning we ask you in jesus name amen all right uh, i see many new faces that i have not seen in the first five sessions so, I will have to, and I will give you just a s- summary, and even it's not a summary, it's just kind of a bullet um, in bullets, kind of recovery, a few major points. And then I will give you a, present, a short visual presentation of what emergence Christianity or what emergence Christianity worldview is. Compare that to biblical worldview or what we Seventh-day Adventists hold and then help you to see the difference. And I assume that you will easily see the difference between the two. And then I will raise a number of questions which are more introspective, self-reflective, and uh, ask questions about our identity and who, we, who are we as Seventh-day Adventists. If we claim we are Seventh-day Adventists, question is now, whether we live up to that expectation and those standards. So, in many ways, what I'm trying to do today is similar to what President Ted Wilson today said. Um, He also addressed to a degree what is our Adventist identity. So, let me share some of these ideas. The Emerging Church Movement... And I have it there for those of you who wonder why is it in quotation marks, the emerging church the emerging church movement, historically speaking, I as a historian who am observing it from the outside. I can call it a movement because you have a group of people who are somehow gelled together. They are held together because they have similar beliefs. They hold to similar views. And in that sense, you can call them, well, this is a popular movement. But I put it in quotation marks as... In, in, as I, I try to respect their own position. They don't like to see themselves as a movement. Matter of fact, they are afraid to become a movement. Because, historically speaking, all movements in history, either, if they are not successful in convincing the public, the mass to their, the masses to their own views and ideas or ideology, the movements would usually disappear, can dissipate. They, they will eventually disappear from the scene. Of course, the emerging church emergence don't like to see that happen. Now, on the other hand, if movements are successful in winning the populace, the masses, to their ideology, and eventually become a dominant ideology, they eventually take control of society. In other words, they institutionalize. And the emergents don't want to institutionalize themselves. They are afraid to become another church. So here, you have to remember, when you speak of the emerging church, or the emergence, you are talking you're not talking about a new denomination in the making they do not want to become another denomination and that because it goes against their own principles because they are at the very core ecumenical they believe in ecumenical unity of all christians and not only all christians but ecumenical unity of all religions so there is no point becoming one, uh, uh, another denomination. They like to see themselves, and that's how they present themselves, they like to uh, talk, see themselves as a emerging conversation. In other words, we are talking, we are sharing, it's a new way of thinking, and, and it is correct. They are giving us, or they are, working on creating or making or actually they adopted already a completely new world view. Now that particular term world view, concept of world view, we use world view, term world view left and right in our daily lives without much thinking. Now because the emergence have, because the emergence do emphasize a lot. In their writings, you will, all, you will see a uh, heavy emphasis on the changes in the worldview. And uh, because of that, it prompted me, uh, forced me to go in and address what is it what, that they are talking about. When we talk so much about this worldview shift, paradigm shift, cultural shift, And they are very heavy on that. That is one of their items, or how should I say, tools that they use in trying to convince the other side to their point of view. Everything changed, therefore everything must change. That's a common motto. And at the same time, it is a title of Brian McLaren's, one of Brian McLaren's books. So uh, the new way of thinking, a new way of doing Christianity, it is the new worldview. And it forced me to go into discussion. There is a whole body of literature on that subject. And uh, I have recognized that most of us really don't... We use that worldview, but we really don't fully understand what that is. Ecumen- they are ecumenical, ecumenical, so ecumenical movement. They call for ecumenical unity, which is by very nature inclusiveness. They reject meta-narratives, they believe that there is no such a thing as one meta-narrative which dominates. Meta-narrative, the phrase itself, means that this is the narrative or the story which is applicable to all humanity and it dominates all other narratives. They don't believe in that. They they take a postmodern position that all narratives... All cultural narratives, all the stories, they need to be heard. And not only that, but that all narratives are of equal worth, and we equal um, how should I say uh, value. no narrative dominates the other. Okay? So now the question is, what do you and I, how do we handle that? Uh, how do we respond to that particular idea? The question is, is Bible one such mega-narrative? I believe it is. The very character of the scripture is that this is the word of God uh, given to us, to humans, through selected individuals that God chose on his own. And we believe that, as such, it is a story that dominates all other stories and therefore applicable to all, to the rest of humanity. So while well, you have that is already one uh, uh, situ- uh, situation, it's tense situation, and how do you respond to it? Uh, innovations in worship, they are known for that, and innovations per se are not necessarily wrong, uh, nothing, nothing wrong to find new ways to attract young people, old people, uh, unbelievers into uh, common worship. However, the problem with innovations is that as we begin to introduce new practices, new ways of worship, we easily if we are not careful, we can easily slip or introduce practices and beliefs and ideas the way we worship which lead us into idolatry. Uh, in other words, we begin to worship like pagans, and so that 's a problem, so we have to keep an, uh, we have to watch and try to figure out what, uh, what innovations and uh, are acceptable and which are dangerous. Spiritual disciplines it's very much of the emerging church there is you cannot imagine emergence Christianity or emerging church. Uh, way of life without spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are very much part of the program which are all there. we are now talking about practicing spiritual disciplines and they can be variety of them Uh, practicing spiritual disciplines is uh, what Christians are supposed to do that is all part of that other term that some of you are familiar with, called spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is another phrase, another term that is, in my opinion, counterfeit to what we Adventists and mainline Protestants call sanctification process. Uh, so, big playing with spiritual disciplines actually means that you and I can step and we are stepping on the path and if we continue path that leads us into mysticism theistic evolutionism is very much pro- part of it it's a matter of fact probably ha- also a heart at the very core of emerging theology and emergent practices emergent beliefs and uh, one problem with theistic evolutionism A lot of people believe that, well, we can incorporate uh, scientific explanation and theistic evolutionism into our understanding of Genesis 1, but then there is a huge problem with the question of death and the origins of death and the origins of evil. And uh, this worldview, uh, those of you who were here on uh, Tuesday, I believe, not Tuesday. On Thursday or Thursday, that's when I spoke on the worldview, and you probably understand how the worldview works, what it is, and this particular question of the origins of life on this earth and the the question of creation. Uh, this is one of the very important. Once you take, once a person takes a position that. Genesis 1 is not giving us historical account of what happened. You are now shifting into theistic evolutionism and then you have uh, it will affect all the other uh, fundamental assumptions about fundamental questions of life. So it is very important. So in my opinion what I have analyzed studied so far Uh, I don't see any way, any room, for theistic evolutionism into the advent faith. People may disagree with me, but um, I can take time and I think I can defend my position on that one. This is also a new commitment, a new identity. And so I will first give you some several slides to explain a few things so that you can understand this new worldview and then I will come back to this question of identity. Now what you see here on this slide is uh, pay attention to the words that I have there but also pay attention to the colors. At the very left you see that small green box. This is the world that God created where there was no sin. At one point Adam and Eve sinned, disobeyed God, and they were sent out of the Garden of Eden. What they did is they made the choice to disobey God and to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We all face, every single one of us in our daily lives, we all face the tree of knowledge and good and evil in one form of the other we do make choices. And many of us inadvertently or intentionally or often approach these, the, tree of light, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and we often talk and listen, carry conversation with the other side. Eve did not sin by approaching the tree. At one moment, the tree looked to her very attractive. She could have turned around and walked away. She began talking with the serpent. The serpent began talking to her, actually. And the conversation was going on. At any point, she still could have turned around and walked away. She didn't. She made a next step. And then comes a the step where she actually ate from the tree. That is the mistake. That's the sin. So what I'm trying to say is we are all often carrying a conversation. We're listening. And that takes, uh, takes place in many forms. So all I'm trying to say is be careful with whom, how, where, and what you are with whom you are conversing, what are you listening, what ideas are entering into your mind, and so on. So, the point is, sin enters the world. Now we have the gray color. Now pay attention to colors, because you will see later how that plays an important role. So, I tried here to put this in a a certain uh, um, proportion here. So you have about something less than 2,000 years, you have kind of there inch and a half long until we come to the flood. And we know that, we believe that that was a historical event. Then we have approximately, I don't know, more than 2,000 years, but nevertheless, 15th century BC, we have this, again, a story, we believe it's a historical story, it really happened. Exodus, Moses, and we have God gives written word, speaks to the people, tells Moses to write it down. Actually, God himself writes a portion of that whole Torah. He gives it to Moses, and we call that, this is the Torah. This is already one form of incarnation of God's word and given to people. Then we have a history of going to the land of Canaan. We have people, and then again, Something happens, and there's another 15 centuries there passed by. Then we have this incarnation of God himself becomes a human being. So we're talking about Jesus here, we're talking about the cross. Another 2,000 years approximately, and we are here now in 2014. We believe that Jesus will come soon, and we have certain evidence to point out why we believe that he will come soon. So I placed that 2014 pretty close to that line. You see now the box turns black. Well, that black is representing that according to what the book of Revelation tells us, that there will be this 1,000 years long kind of abyss, like a pit. There are no human beings. They are dead. They are gone. Satan is there and his angels probably just wondering what in the world did they do. And then after 1,000 years, we believe that now Jesus returns. No, prior to 1,000 years, Jesus returns. After 1,000 years, we have New Jerusalem comes down upon the earth. And after that, New Jerusalem comes down. We have a period of time. We don't know how long that will take, where the wicked are resurrected. Activities are going on. Admission that God's character is God is right. But then, after all, they decide they can take the city. And there is a moment where eventually God will destroy Satan, demons, wicked people, and completely recreate new earth. And in that sense, evil, that story, whatever it's, however it's long, from the fall of Adam and Eve until destruction of Satan, demons, and wicked people, or unrighteous people, people who rejected the gospel, there will be now recreation, and there will be a new, the world again without sin. Okay, so that's why you have green color again. That's important. Keep that in mind to see it. Okay, have I misrepresented biblical story here on Adventism in any way? You want to correct it? Okay, I believe this is what the Scripture is telling. This is the history. This is, uh, you can build on this, your philosophy of history. This is, in other words, part of this great controversy, which is not yet complete. I'm still going to tell you more. Now, how do you and I know that Jesus is coming soon? Well, we know it based on this, what you see in the purple. I call it the Yom Kippur narrative. And I do that on purpose. Because those of you who attended the meeting yesterday, you remember I talked about how the emergents understand the atonement. And that there is something there that they're missing the point. And that we Seventh-day Adventists have a good story to tell, to to tell them really what it means when we speak of the atonement. So in order to kind of distinguish it from their way of seeing it, I'm using the term Yom Kippur. I could use also the Sanctuary Doctrine, but okay, I decided to use this. Uh, You'll see why. Okay, the 2,300 days, years, prophecy clearly points to us, because now 2,300 days, years, prophecy is directly connected to the Sanctuary. When When Daniel saw a vision, the whole vision that has this particular prophecy is directly talking about the issues, what is happening in the sanctuary. Because the very question is how long, when will be the sanctuary cleansed? When will that to is, when will the day, the day of Atonement take place? And we are told it will take 2003 evenings, mornings. Okay. So, it is 1844 that tells us that Jesus is coming soon. That's how you can claim Jesus is coming soon. That sometime after 1844, soon Jesus will come back. And we anticipate that coming soon. Now, uh, notice this. I'm adding a few. Okay, that on the top, we'll come back to it a few minutes later. That uh, yellow kingdom of God uh, statement, I'll come to it in a few minutes. Now, notice this. Before the flood, and this is important to keep in mind. Why did flood take place? Because human beings apostatized. The very bottom, you see that gray line at the very bottom. I I stated that human societies or human beings repeatedly tend to move toward moral depravity. That is human tendency by very nature. If God leaves us alone, we would simply go deeper and deeper into that moral depravity. Now, apostasy is what forced God to bring flood upon humanity. That's what the Bible tells us. God looked and he could hardly find few people there who are living according to his will. Then we have children of Israel. What is it that forced children of Israel into exile? Apostasy. We are talking about Jesus, and immediately after Jesus' ascension, we have a generation of his disciples who, after his ascension kind of organized themselves and they were already in many, in few ways, different than the other compatriots of of the people there. And do you know, okay, they are not called yet Christians. They the early disciples did not go around and identify themselves. We are Christians. Interesting thing is they identified as the way. Paul received letters or, I mean, Saul received letters from the authorities to pursue the followers of the way. And we have several, about seven, eight references to that generation calling the way. Do you know what the way means? It is not chosen just you know, Okay, let's call ourselves the way. No, they precisely chose, I found one he, a Jewish scholar who says the way meant the Torah. When Jesus said, I am the truth, every listener in the audience understood very well what he meant. It meant, I am the Torah. When he said, I am the way, I am the the gate, I'm the life, I'm the truth. Jews considered the Torah as the ultimate revelation of God. The word of God was the truth, the gate, the way, and all of that. That is an important point to keep in mind for what I will tell you in the next few sentences. Immediately starting in the second century, church fathers began to deliberately, intentionally, distance themselves from judaism from the torah the law of moses and these are the uh, expressions of hate and contempt for jews judaism and through centuries this deliberate distancing away from the old testament as they named it the jews never called what the old testament old testament it's the bible Christians come up with the title New Testament. I wish they never came up with it. Why not call it the uh, writings of the apostles or apostolic writings? But once you call it New Testament, it plays on the mind. The new always supersedes the old. The old is always somehow less important. So, this stepping away will lead the church into apostasy. By 13th century, we can clearly say and every church historian can, some church historians can challenge me on that, but I don't, I don't think they, they have a ground to stand on. By 13th century, we can clearly say, history shows us, the church has become the enemy of God. The Christian church has become the enemy of God. And it was persecuting and destroying and killing anyone who was disagreeing with the church authorities. That is what Christianity has become. Eventually we have this 1517 Protestant Reformation. Well, reformers go even back before Martin Luther. But nevertheless 1517 stands for the Reformation. The Reformation was a rebellion against the church authority. For all practical purposes it was a rebellion. That rebellion will eventually shift against ecclesiastical authorities to royal authorities. Therefore, we have introduction of other how we govern ourselves, all of that shift to nation concept. We shift to democracies and all of that stuff. And eventually, modernity will come in, which is slowly there is a shift from medieval worldview to modern worldview, and we finally come 20, 19th century. Where the church is experi the church the Catholic Church is experienced so much uh, how should I say criticism and hits that eventually by 19th century the church is virtually screaming like a parent who cannot control his or her children and is and is screaming and saying you better obey me why well because I say so I'm referring to the papal infallibility doctrine. And now we come to the post-1945 world. Then we have two world wars. We have totalitarian regimes, we have colonialism, we have the Holocaust, we have the atomic bomb Hiroshima, we have all of this experience, and after 1945, whereas before World War One, the entire generation of the nineteenth century they were so convinced that we humanity have finally reached the peak of human genius, and we, the future, will be better. So the 70-some years before 1914 are known in history as the age of progress. We are going to make it. And then what happens? Then we have this great calamity of which I mentioned before. Western civilization, which has achieved so much for humanity, now brings the greatest disasters upon humanity that ever humanity experienced. And you include in that world wars, totalitarian regimes, uh, anti-Semitism, racism, Holocaust, Hiroshima, colonialism, all of that stuff. And therefore after 1945-1950s we have a very strong reaction against modernity and that promise of progress which modernity failed but at the same time it is reaction against christianity and to some and to good extent judaism so that is what postmodernity is rejection of all of that and seeking new ways and where do western where do westerners turn to they turn to the east it is the east now which is offering religions of meditation contemplation and peace and therefore we have now putting it together, and new ideas are beginning to come into picture. So I gave you a little history here, okay? So what is happening is, again, you see that under number 1517 you have that box which says apostasy. I don't have to tell you, you follow the news, and you can see where our society is going. Do you know... Okay, I'll just take one example and then I'll keep moving, because... Do you know that for the first time in human history, we as a society are redefining the fundamental (coughs) unit of society in a different way? (coughs) Rarely in the past, there were only few civilizations when we begin to redefine what marriage is, then how far have we gone as a society? Now, that doesn't mean, having said it, doesn't mean that, I may not even use the term perversion here, did not exist in the past. Yes, they did. But that was more, on a small numbers of individuals. But when society, when it comes to that level, that societies themselves begin to adopt norms and values which are different, then we are coming into something we can call apostasy. And so, you see, the, the apostasy is very much part of human history. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Now, notice the following here, questions of historicity and the manner of the second coming. That's important for us. Question of the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God? According to the biblical truth, thank you very much, thanks. According to what I understand the scripture tells us, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom where there is no sin. Am I correct on that one? Do you agree with that? Okay. Yes, it is true that soon, as soon as Adam and Eve fell, rebelled against God, God immediately instituted a plan to save them because basically they were tricked. Adam and Eve were tricked. Satan knew exactly what he was doing, but Adam and Eve were not, they were in a way deceived. So God institutes a plan and that plan to recover humanity and earth, we already see in Genesis uh, 3.15. It's right there. It's a promise. Then the legal victory, that means that finally God has this, quote, legal victory, won. That happened at the cross. Now, if you go into the sanctuary model... Every child, children, uh, every man, every woman from children of Israel. If a person, if I were, if you lived in, if I lived in those days, and if I sinned and I felt, well, I really need to take to make a sacrifice. I need to take a lamb for my sins. I really sinned. I would lead my lamb all the way to the gate of the sanctuary of of the tabernacle. And I would have access only up to the altar of the burnt offering. No Israelite, except Levites and priests, no Israelite had access to go further than that. And once the sacrifice is done, I walk away, knowing that I am saved. I am cleansed. That is. That's why the, That's what means. What did Jesus achieve at the, at the Calvary? When people, when Protestant challenges and say, well, you Adventists are saying that some uh, salvation uh, was not complete at the Calvary, they are confusing issues. I am saved by Calvary. But more needs to be done. Not for my salvation. That's, that, that's done, because my salvation is in the hands of Jesus Christ but more needs to be done to get rid of sin and because of the sake of the universe, God and his struggle with Satan and all of that, do you follow that that's important to keep in mind therefore, what happened on the Calvary as far as the atonement is concerned it's not over that's not it. Because on the Day of Atonement, that one day in the year, on the Yom Kippur day, okay, the entire ritual did not start and end at the altar of the burnt offering. It just starts there. But it goes into the sanctuary, the most holy place. Then it comes out and ends with the sending of the other he go to the world. There is a whole, much more happening on the Day of Atonement. So, the Protestants, because of the Church Fathers who framed the discussion of the Atonement, and now, the, for, thousands, for hundreds of years, we have a discussion of Atonement focusing all over on the Calvary and stays there. And we have all kinds of theories that they produce. But none of those theories gives you a complete picture of what is happening. Only the, what we Adventists call the Sanctuary Doctrine, that is the complete story. And that needs to be told to the people. They somehow have to grasp that, if we are able to do that. Now, you... Okay, so you got that point. Now, a question of apostasy, question of origins salvation, death and evil. Now, I'm going to introduce to you Tayardian worldview. Those of you who were here before, you could probably recognize that. Tayard de Chardin came up with a worldview in which he argued that approximately 15 billion years ago, Big Bang took place. And in contrast to Darwin, who argued that evolutionary process is driven by principle of natural selection, Teilhard de Chardin, now keep in mind, Teilhard de Chardin is both a Jesuit theologian, but at the same time also a scientist. And he, was, he firmly believed, he accepted evolutionary theory, but he disagreed with Darwin. He argued that the evolutionary process is driven by the principle of, uh, by, uh, of emergence. What he meant by that is that evolutionary process go, uh, moves forward, but that God is involved in that process. Okay? Now... I don't want to go further in that. You know, if you were here, you know more about it. If not, you have to study on your own. Tajard. The question is now. He argues that the entire evolutionary process goes in divergence, and then when with Christ becoming one with humanity, now the responsibility of Christ to take the entire creation. Now we have convergence toward the omega point. The omega point is a term that he uses for something like divine. In in other words, humanity... or No, not humanity alone. The entire creation will become one with God. Okay. Now. Emergent theology or emergent worldview completely disregards all that scenario up there that you see about this is our Adventist scenario. You can take this out and you can put there uh, Scottfield uh, and Evangelical seven years of tribulation and rapture and all of that. You know you can have this post-futurist, uh, preterist, all of that. Emergence rejects all of that. In the Tayardian worldview, in this emergent worldview, none of that makes sense. Because they believe that when Christ came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. And it is our responsibility as Christians to work toward the making of this kingdom of God on this earth. We are, as I pointed out to you yesterday, according to Scott McKnight, his theory of atonement called atonement uh, uh, in practice in praxis, pra- in practice he meant he simply means you and I have responsibility to reconcile creation and each o- among ourselves and ourselves with God so emergence reject the doctrine of Eternal hell. They reject rapture. They they, they think that's all nonsense. Brian McLaren does not believe in historical second coming. Second coming was, that's ridiculous. So when does does Jesus come? Did Jesus Christ come? Well, he comes for the second time when he comes into your life. Now, can you see the difference between the two worldviews? a huge difference. It changes everything, the entire paradigm. So when you listen to emergence and you talk to them and you read their literature you can see you can only ask yourself or you can see how far the particular author has emerged. I like to use that term how, because some of them have emerged much further into it some have, or evolved, that's emerging, emergent actually means evolving. So the consequences that we are facing today, it's a completely new way of thinking. So people, second coming is somehow pushed aside, the doctrine of Jesus doing something in, and uh, The idea of that God will come and destroy humanity, that is very strange. Many emergents believe that God's love is so great. And according to the worldview, the argument would go something like this. You and I, as humans, we really do not understand God's love. God's love is so great that God's love will forgive, love, and save all of us. And few of them, some of them, not all of them because that's very radical from what they were told as children. But some of them even dare to say that all human beings who ever lived will be saved. The entire creation. And uh, some Well, you you raised the question of Satan. interesting thing is that emergents do not believe in the existence of Satan. Many Christians don't believe. Many Christians, I mean people who call themselves Christians, many of them don't believe. When I was in Albuquerque Convention, I told you the story yesterday, just make it briefly here. we had an opportunity, we who were in the audience, to write questions down which they would answer. I asked the question, something along these lines. The uh, Bible clearly tells us that there is Satan which tempted Jesus, uh, uh, involved in the story of book, in the book of Job, mentioned in a uh, number of uh, texts throughout the scripture. The well, Bible talks about the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve. Now, how does Satan and... Uh, Uh, as a person fits into what you are teaching us here. And uh, when we had a question and answer period on the last meeting on Sunday, uh, the first question they pulled out of the ball was my question. To which Richard Rohr responded that there is no such a thing as Satan, Christians invented that. To which Brian McLaren added that uh, Christians invented Satan and demons for the purpose of demonizing those with whom they disagree. There are a lot of people who simply dismiss that there is Satan. The problem with theistic evolutionism leads people into this uh, position where they do not know how to explain origins of evil and death. And not only origins but also uh, the nature. Because if you look at this worldview at the bottom, tell me where can you place and say, "Well, this is where evil began." There is no that you cannot do that. In other words, evil. And somebody here mentioned to me yesterday. They are talking with a friend. There are people who simply believe that evil is a nat- fo- natural force. Well, that is an Eastern Eastern idea. Well, in the, Hinduism. Evil is opposite to goodness. It is like two natural forces which maintain, they are necessary in order to maintain the balance of the cosmos. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that evil is a natural force. And I don't believe that evil is a natural force like gravitation. No. Evil is act by a person or a being. There is always, when we talk about sin and evil, there is always a being, a created being, who acted intelligently, made the choice to do something against the will of God. And so it takes away the story of Satan. I like also to point out that when, okay, the book of Genesis, we believe it was written by Moses. That is 15th century B.C. It was not written at the time of Adam and Eve. So when God gave these revelations and probably Moses received either through oral history or he received it also directly from God. But when Moses tells us how God created the earth human beings and this world and if Moses stopped right there. He says, well, that's the account how everything came into being. I don't think that that was sufficient for humanity. Those human beings, those Israelites, who just came out of the land of Egypt, they were like all the other human beings asking fundamental questions of life. Why do we die? Why do we suffer? Why did we do this and this and this? And I talked with you about these fundamental questions of life. The story in Genesis, I believe, you cannot read chapter 1 and chapter 2 without reading chapter 3. It is chapter 3 which is actually addressing the issues that human beings are concerned the most. And chapter 1 is simply saying, God is saying, I created it and it was good, very good. Period. Now you guys are living in a world where you do have suffering, pain, and death. You know how that came into being? It has nothing to do with me. And then you have chapter 3. So people who want to read Genesis 1 and separate it from Genesis 3, well, they are doing disservice to themselves and to the, to the scriptures. That has goes together. And the only way, when Teilhard de Chardin, in his book, The Phenomenal Man, it's very interesting, he completed his book in 1939 uh, or 37, something like that, and did not well address the question of death and suffering. So he had to write, like, appendix to the book, in which, about three, four pages, in which he tries to explain, well, how do we deal with evil and death? The same thing you find it in Hegel. Hegel also has very similar philosophy of history. And you find it in writings of Polkinghorne. You find of many Christian writers. who are They adopt atheistic evolutionism. But now how do you explain origins of evil and, and death? You know what the best they can do is? Hegel comes up with, well, that's a hiccup in life. Polkinghor comes up with the phrase, well, that is, uh, uh, misfortunate moments of life. I find that ridiculous. Are you going to tell the Holocaust survivors, you know what happened to you? It was a misfortunate moment in life. Are you going to tell a mother who is bearing a two-year-old child, you know what, this is just a hiccup in life. It is really the fundamental question that people want to know is answers, why do we suffer and die? And I think, you know, we live in a world, forget what Brian McLaren and Emergence tell you, that everything changed. Yes, a lot of changed because technology. But there are certain things that have not changed. And that is a human nature and the human fundamental questions of life. They're always there. Every culture deals with it. It doesn't matter whether you come from, ancient, in ancient, uh, from Turkish or nat- um, Native Americans or from Africa or Russia. It doesn't matter. If you lived 6,000 years ago or you live today, people deal with these issues. And our opportunity is when you meet people, listen to them. Listen to their pain. Listen to their issues that they're dealing with and then begin to help them to resolve those issues it is a tremendous way of reaching people and helping them recognize the gospel it is easy to you know i'm not against giving literature just going to give that's okay good but it is much more effective listen to people that you are on a daily basis with you meet them most of us are lonely people. People live in their own, I don't know how to call it, you know, alone, suffer. And I, I find this very, very, very useful. So let me just share a few more things because time is flying out. Um, I have not shared this with you in the previous five sessions, but I will short share it with you. Do you you know the World Council of Churches? It's a very powerful organization. World Council of Churches every every year issues a book that is focused on one topic or something, several articles there. they usually call upon experts, academics, to write on different issues. New Directions in Faith and Order. This is the book published in 1967. They published an article, 40-plus pages long, titled, God in Nature and History. Since I teach faith and history, I teach philosophy of history. uh, It's part of our major, for our history majors. I use this article because it belongs to philosophy of history. This is fascinating. This is 1967, two years after the closing of the Second Vatican Council. And I will read these three paragraphs with you. Those of you who heard me talk about Teilhard de Chardin, you will recognize the voice. Without any deliberate choice on his part, modern man has entered into a new experience and understanding of nature and history. New experience. For many centuries, there was a general tendency to consider non-human nature, that means material nature, as any, and uh, animal nature, as an entirely earth-bound static reality, this planet being conceived as the stage for the drama of human life. That's kind of reference to what we say, okay? In European culture, history was thought of as covering a short period of but a few thousand years. That's a reference to creations, creationists, okay? Um, few thousand years, and also as a basically static reality within which fall, incarnation, and consummation that is, the end of the world and all that, were seen as the three incidents of which the second and the third aimed at the restoration of a supposedly perfect beginning. Supposedly perfect beginning. This worldview underwent a gradual disintegration in the period succeeding the Renaissance The process speeded up about 1850. That's about Darwinian period. Now, since 1950, that's after World War II, the quick destruction of its last remnants has become manifest, as it has given way to a radically new and dynamic concept of nature and history. For modern man, nature is thus no longer a static, geocentric, that means Earth-bound, limited entity, but a process in an indeterminate space and an almost endless time. The Earth is a tiny satellite of a little star in one of the many galaxies discovered by terrestrial telescopes. The process of development that term development is used at the Vatican, Second Vatican Council. It is borrowed from John Henry Newman. Goes back to 19th century which is built upon this concept of development will come Teilhard de Chardin with his concept of emergence and evolution. So development means kind of evolutionary process. Um, The process of development of this earth began about 4 billion years ago. This is like when biogenesis phase that Teilhard de Chardin is talking about. That process went on through all kinds of events in a checkered career, that means back and forth and so on, as matter, then life, and then conscious life came to be through ever higher and more complex unities Characterized by a gradually increasing possibility of freedom. Until about two or one million years ago, the phenomenon of men emerged. And you can go read, keep reading. This is Teilhard. This is World Council of Churches. This is what churches ever since were reading and believing. So do not be surprised that 90% of Christians today are atheistic evolutionists. So, who are you? What is that makes you tick? What is the hierarchy of your identities, my friend? Now I'm talking, Ted Wilson did a good job for me, you know, I don't have to ask you. Do we really understand what is our responsibility as Seventh-day Adventists? What does it mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What is our reason of existence? Are we ready? Are we able? Are we willing to learn the language of non-Adventists to win them? We don't even know how to talk to these people. What is our attitude toward them? An opportunity to join the conversation, a platform, a forum to address many issues that weigh down the people, I think is being created by the emergence. I don't want you to become the emergence. But the emergents are people who are frustrated with everything that is, and even religion, that has been institutionalized, become business. They see prejudice, they see all kinds of abuse, misuse uh, of earth, of resources, of uh, misuse of each other, abuse of each other, all kinds of things. They are simply raising questions. And I agree with them when there is questions, when they point out of the problems. Christianity has become a routine. Christianity has become sterile. Well, the message to Laodicea tells you about all of us. The problem with the emergence is that they are getting wrong answers to the fundamental questions of life. And we have those answers. We have to... Uh, I hope we didn't lose them. But if you lost them, go back to the scriptures, you'll get them. And therefore, that we can share with others. What image of ourselves do we project to the people? Do you know when I sit in these meetings and I listen to these people, and I shared with you, because so many of you are here for the first time, so I'll share with you again. Not again with you, but with the others who are here. When I listened to Richard Rohr, who made the statement, and he kind of summarized what happened in the Second Vatican Council, he said, and he, sp- he was speaking to the Protestant audience, people in the audience were mostly Protestants, he said, we Catholics recognized in 1960s, before, before the Second Vatican Council, we recognized that for 400 years, we have been doing what you have been doing. You were shooting arrows at us, telling us how we are doctrinally wrong." And we are shooting back at you, trying to prove you wrong. And so, for 400 years, we were hating each other, shooting arrows at each other. We are even waging wars. We had churches across the street, but we'd never put our foot into the church of the other. Finally, in the 1960s, at the Second Vatican Council, the church recognized we have to change our attitude. And from that moment on, we don't see you anymore as enemies. We see you as friends. What happened in the Second Vatican Council is the Church changed the attitude and the changed the language. Now it is not any more dominant. Now it is servant to the world. You read the language that is used in the documents of the Council, and you will see that you have a Church which is now presenting itself. Pope Francis is the embodiment of the Second Vatican Council. So when he goes around, and he is a servant to the people goes with the poor people. He is actually living, doing something and I'm sitting there listening what happened to us Seventh-day Adventists. Now I'm not saying go and follow Francis, that's a counterfeit. But we need to wake up, we need to really do something about what image do we project to people and imagine groups of people out there you have a group of people who are telling we are here to serve you and they are projecting the image of a servant. But you have another group who are still projecting an image of a warrior. We are here to tell you the truth. We are you know, kind of fighting for Christ. I think we have to change a little bit of how, how we project ourselves. That is what I'm learning from the emergence. But I'm afraid at the same time that as many of our people are trying to do that, that we also see that we are not careful enough and we are letting emergent ideas to creep into our thinking. And we are doing some things that are transforming our thinking and our behavior. Now, you and I may be able to somehow stand up. But now think about our younger generations who are looking upon us and listening and talking to this world and these people. They go to schools, they go with peers, they watch media, television, play video games. And these ideas are everywhere. And so the question is, who are we, what do we do, how do we handle? And I think we have a serious problem in front of us. So I, uh, Oh, okay, big questions. Okay, I'm already saying all of that. Disciples of emergence Christianity and other non-biblical worldviews are working to convince the masses of their worldview, and they are building the kingdom of God on this earth here and now. We Seventh-day Adventists are also working to convince the people of the biblical worldview. We point to Jesus Christ and his atoning work that makes the kingdom of God historical reality. How do we go about carrying out the Lord's commission to Matthew, or Matthew 28? One prevailing idea and attitude today in the world out there is that it is inappropriate to evangelize, proselytize, and convert. That conclusion was made at the Second Vatican Council. But it creeps among us. But we we have to. And there, you know I, I attended a seminar this last June. Uh, it's a different story, but anyway, I don't know how many of you heard of a document, Nostra etate. It's a document issued the Second Vatican Council, how the Catholics should refer and relate to the Jews. The conclusion is that it is inappropriate for the Catholic clergy, and Catholics to carry on evangelization and trying to convert the Jews to Christianity. And it bothers a lot of Catholics. Catholics themselves are saying what in the world is going on? How do we follow the council conclusions which are binding upon them and yet fulfill the Lord's commission of Matthew 28? So, emerging church is not, emerging Christianity is not affecting only us. It is affecting evangelicals, Catholics, others. But I'm concerned about ourselves, because we have a responsibility, we have a message, we have something to offer to this world. So, do you have questions and answers? No questions, I have, I will try to provide answers. Okay, I am five minutes over, I apologize for that. Uh, As I understand, there are no Mm -hmm. other activities. I'm willing to stay here for another maybe 15-20 minutes. Yes, ma'am, please speak loud, please. Please, please, hold on. Louder, please. No, 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 be careful here. I'm saying that some of them believe that, not everyone, some of them, many of them are careful not to go that far because that ends up into so-called universalism. And they know very much that uh, for humanity to accept universalism really doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Because we do know that they are evil people. And so how would evil people end up uh, in the kingdom, like me, who am a victim. So, some of them dare say it, but not all of them. What would you say, what would you say that there's no What do you mean, say it? Because they believe already that they are... They don't use the term, say, they believe that Holy Spirit works in their lives, and the results that you and I see in the lives of ourselves, they believe that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you notice, in Teilhardian worldview, there is no room about to talk about apostasy. You cannot talk about apostasy in this worldview. Because if everything is evolving, the idea is that at any point in time, The truth, that means the totality of knowledge that we have, supersedes the totality of knowledge of any other point in the past. Because it is evolving. It's moving forward. There is no way, you cannot talk about apostasy. That's the reason why we have now emergence are rewriting church history. Now, Martin Luther it's not a rebel anymore. He's part of that evolutionary development process. So they don't talk about new birth, new uh, salvation. They talk about we are already here, this is the kingdom, we are responsible in being involved in social activism, helping the poor, fighting for justice, taking care of the earth because that's responsibility and this is say this is the world Do they in this just keeps going there is no afterlife is okay you asked the question of afterlife the point is when you die you are just in a way stepping in another form of existence okay because everything if one it has now, now it has this resonance of Hinduism, Eastern religions. Eventually, everything will be one with Omega Point. Language is different, it's the way of seeing things. So sometimes, when you and I ask questions from our worldview, those people don't understand it. So, it is important for us to know how they think. So that we can help them finally begin to change some of those assumptions so that they begin to recognize that, listen, after all, what you are told is nothing else but lies. Because after all, the question of death and suffering is the most important. It affects everybody. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen when I die. People like to live, believe it or not. People want to be happy. And these people, in my opinion, this this theology is nothing else but just like a religious opium to drug the people. To to tell them, listen, accept the life the way it is. You know, it'll be better. Yeah, nobody likes to talk about judgment these days. We are a generation, see, that if I go talk now about social history, just forget religion a little bit. We are a generation since 1950s, 60s. We have, there is more and more Everything is kind of starts and ends with feelings. How you feel. We we are careful how, and we should be careful. But we are careful about self-esteem, the feelings. We don't hurt the feelings. Don't oh, be careful. And therefore, what is happening is that my students today everything somehow starts with feeling, and they would say, "I feel," and I and I had to correct them and say, "I'm not asking you how you feel." I'm asking you, what do you believe about this? And so many students, I would see from the young people, they would say, they judge something, whether it's good or wrong. How do you decide what's right and wrong? Well, if it feels good, it's right. Well, since when? Well, but the whole generation, since 1960, this is already two. we are entering a third generation who thinks that way. But that's what the scripture says. God cares about your feelings. That's true. Because we are beings of feelings. But God is not approaching you from the feelings. God wants you to use the full faculty of reasoning. But when you use your faculty of reasoning and you obey his commandments you are by obedience to his commandments Protecting your own feelings and the feelings of everybody around you. And therefore, everybody is happy. But when you start thinking about how I feel, then we are self-centered. And whoever steps on my feelings, I get angry. Do you see the difference? And so, you can detect that and just look around. I mean, everybody just how I feel, what I feel, and that's how... So I hope that does that answer your question? Next one, yes, and please. Similar or from what that Okay, I'm not expert on John Kellogg. I just know something about it and what I do know is that John Kellogg was involved. Uh, He believed that, now you guys correct me more, you theologian Mike and uh, Chris, and so on. Uh, John, uh, John Kellogg believed that he can use hypnosis in his medical practice. He got involved in that. He eventually got involved in pantheism. And so therefore, Ellen White struggled with him for about two decades. And eventually he left the church. Now... She labeled that Alpha Omega and told us that in the fu- she was shown that in the future there will be even greater deception. And I can tell you, now you are asking me compare the two, what we are facing today is way, way broader and bigger than what John Kellogg was facing. But it is again connected to... Hypnotism is also very similar to mysticism. And mysticism is at the very heart of emergence. People who are involved in emergent theologies, emergent practices, they are slowly walking the path. And, and what I like to use the term, they are emerging. And as they are emerging, the path leads them into mysticism. Sooner or later. Or they will probably recognize that something's wrong and they'll turn around and walk back. And I hope that takes place. But um, uh, spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation, according to Richard Richard Foster, Dallas Wheeler, and all the mystics. I mean, Richard Rohr, I heard him say, every single spiritual discipline. And to my surprise, he even said, even rosary is created with an intention to lead you and train you to achieve contemplative consciousness which is level where you begin to be full-fledged practicing mystic okay so i trust a full-fledged mystic when he tells me about their own programs what it is and i have more difficulty with people who don't know mysticism who are defending to me Richard Foster, Dallas Wheeler and Spiritual Disciplines trying to tell me that it uh, doesn't have to be mysticism. Well, I trust those who made it, what, why they made it. They know what they're talking about. Now, Spiritual, spiritual Disciplines, my friends, Spiritual Formation phrase, it's a modern, it's about 30-40 years old, according to Dallas Wheeler. But Spiritual Disciplines, these practices to get into mysticism, And mysticism itself. That's an ancient practice. That goes back to ancient times. It entered into Christianity in about 3rd, 4th century, but it entered only among a small group of monks. And it was existing among Christians. And then, interesting thing is that around the time of the Council of Trent, as the Catholic Church tried to respond to the Protestant challenges, it defended the Catholic doctrines, it reformed the practices within the Church. But what is very interesting is that in order to respond to the Lutheran piety, it involved the mystics like Teresa Ovia and some others to introduce to their how should I say, members or the common people to begin these spiritual disciplines even more in order to counter the Protestant piety. Now, and it kind of existed among some people because a lot of people don't pay attention to it. But eventually the Second Vatican Council, Richard Rohr says, we Catholics recognize and we said, well, we made a mistake. We are not going to do it anymore what we used to do for 400 years. We are not going to do it Dominican way, we'll do it Franciscan way. Do you know what that means? The Americans are Catholic order which cre- pay attention to education and academic training. So what he's telling me, we are not going to do to argue with you anymore on doctrinal points. Whether you are right or wrong or we, are, that's beside the point. He says we are going to do it Franciscan way. Now what is the Franciscan way? Well, St Francis St. Francis is the guy who is paying attention to meditation and contemplation. In other words, he's saying, We Catholics are not going to argue over doctrines with you. We are going to pray and meditate together. And therefore, we pray and meditate. And don't you notice, my friends, I'm not against prayer, but don't you notice how heavy emphasis on prayer we have? Let's pray, let's pray, everybody prays. How many times do you hear, Let's study the Bible? Not to read the Bible, I'm talking study it. Now, when you get into the study Bible, you get 20 people together and study the Bible, what do you have? Sooner or later, you will have disagreements. And that's okay, because they are trying to figure out, to understand what's the meaning. No, 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 we don't want to disagree. But when people pray, they don't disagree, they just pray together. So I'm not against prayer, and I'm not saying stop it, I'm just saying, listen what's happening. We are talking to seductive... We have here seductive language. Read my article, Lover or Seducer, last week of June, review and Adventist review. Read it. I try to explain there the voice of a seducer. And we like to use the language, this metaphor of Jesus being our bridegroom and we the church or we individually are the bride. And we like that metaphor. It's a powerful metaphor. But we forget that wherever there is a lover and true lover and a girl there is always seducer who wants to get in. So, And I, I don't want to focus on what the devil works but we should know what. And so but be careful at the same time, do not attack people, do not attack groups, do not make it a personal fight. Because your I believe your responsibility and my responsibility is to win, if possible, even Brian McLaren, Richard Rohr, and people who are there. So don't make it personal, but attack ideas, expose them. Explained them. But that requires a lot of reading, a lot of study, excelling, knowing the scripture, knowing spiritual prophecy, knowing other issues, and all that. This message was recorded by View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.